There was um, a father and a son, and their greatest joy was collecting paintings. And they actually was getting together a great collection of some incredible masters. They had a couple of Rembrandts and a Van Gogh. And one of the greatest joys for them to sit in their banquet hall and to look at these different paintings and share time together. Well, it came that the Vietnam War started and the son was called to go and fight in the Vietnam War. And his father was very frightened, but off he went. Then the father got the tragic news that his son had actually died, but he had died while saving five other soldiers. And no matter how many times the father sat in that banquet hall, the joy of those paintings never came alive to him again. The person who told me this story knew these people very well, so that's why it's a bit emotional. Anyway, the father tried to cope with his life, and a few years after the death of his son, there was a knock on the door, and the father was told that this person who was standing at the door was actually one of the soldiers that his son had died for. And he had been great friends with his son as they had trained together. And he had actually painted a picture of his son. And as the father opened this picture, this painting, he began to weep because this man had caught in his eyes his son's heart that was so full of love. Anyway, the father put this picture in pride of place. And he wanted people to see this picture because he really felt that it showed them the heart of the son, which was so full of love. Well, the father died a few years later, and it became the selling point of the whole estate. And people in the art world traveled from all over the world to come to this estate in America to buy these masters. And when the auction started, the first picture they held up was the picture of the son. And many of these great collectors started shouting and moaning about, we didn't come for this amateur rubbish, we came for the masters. Get on with the masters. But the auctioneer persisted in trying to sell this picture of the son. One of the gardeners of the estate, who loved the father and son, stood up and offered $200. And the auctioneer asked if there was any improvement on that bid, but there was no improvement. And so he sold the picture of the son to the gardener. Then the, the collectors were all eager to bring out the masterpieces, but the auctioneer started closing his case and moving away. And many of them jumped up and said, what are you doing? This is what we've come from. Where are the masters? And he said, the father left in his will, one of the stipulations was, whoever buys the son, whoever gets the son, whoever owns the son, receives everything. In my own life, I had no concept of who Jesus was. I had no concept who the son was. 
I was baptized a Catholic, but I was never brought up as a Catholic. I never went to Catholic school. I never went to church. At the age of 10, I came home a normal night, and my parents told me that I had to choose who I wanted to live with because they were getting divorced. And I spent the two people I trusted the most in this world had crushed me inside. So I think I made an unconscious decision that I wasn't our love. Because I really thought when you love, you just get crushed. So if you don't love, you don't get hurt. My step, my mama had a nervous breakdown and went to psychiatric hospital and my dad remarried. And my stepmom thought the best way of bringing up a kid was beating them each day. So that was my upbringing. At the age of about 13, I started stealing because I wanted someone to take notice of the pain that I was in. I expect I wanted someone to tell me that they loved me. But because my dad was a policeman, it just added to the beatings. At 15, I was put in detention centre, which is like a youth prison. And I actually thought it was better in there than being at home. So I left home at 15. And because I never... In fact, my dad made the comment once that on your last day of school, you had to ask directions because you was never there. And because I was never at school, my only qualification was stealing. So that's what I did. At 19, I was in prison again, and there was another change in me. I spent the way I dealt with all the abuse I suffered as a kid is I just turned that abuse into anger. So I was always fighting. So I was put on 23-hour solitary confinement. And the only way I could describe it was like having a mirror put in front of you. And because I hated what I saw in that reflection, I seriously thought about taking God's greatest gift, my own life. But God must have been there because I didn't take my own life, but I came out of there more angry and more bitter than ever. And I thought, what you want out of this world, you take, because no one gives you anything. And I started bouncing around the East End and West End clubs of London. And I met some guys who seemed to have everything. You know, they walked into a club and everything stopped because they had this respect and this power. And I wanted that respect and I wanted that power. And I thought that in my naivety, this would fulfill me. So I started working for these people. And one of the first jobs I got was to go to Dover, which is a port, and to pick up a Land Rover, and I was told where this Land Rover was, and I was given a set of keys, and I came back to London, and I was paid £5,000. And I realised that the Land Rover was full of drugs. But after a short space of time, it wasn't that I was working with these people, sorry, it wasn't when I was working for these people, I was working with them. And these were the people who ran most of the organised crime in London. So to my shame, I was involved in major drug deals, protection rackets, vicious crime of all sorts. Like there was a time where I'd seldom leave my house without a gun. Now I'd never leave my house without a rosary. And I think this is far more powerful than any gun I've ever come across. Like I was in the Bronx in New York, which is one of the roughest places in the world. And there's a lot of gangs there. And one of the gangs is called the Bloods. Well, the Bloods take members as young as 15, girls as well as boys. And if you want to join the Bloods, you have to pass the initiation, which means you ride a subway train. 
and there's two gang members watching you and you have to walk up to this complete stranger, doesn't matter if it's an old man, old lady, young boy or young girl, but they have to be wearing red. That's why they're called the Bloods. And you have to walk up to this complete stranger and slash him across the face with a standing knife. And if the two gang members see you do this, you've passed the initiation and you can join the gang. Now, you can leave this gang any time you like, but you have to ask permission. And the first thing the gang members do is they take all their change out of their pocket and they throw it on the floor. And you have to pick up all this change and walk out the door. And if you can do that, you can leave the gang. But while you're doing that, they're hitting you with iron bars and baseball bats. And if you're still alive when you get outside the door, they think you're hard enough that if the police get hold of you, you're not going grass them up to the police so you can leave the gang. Now, you might think, well, that's ridiculous. Who'd ever join a gang like that? They're queuing up because they want to belong to something. How many of us wear masks? Not because we're bad people. We want people to love us and accept us. So we become whatever people want us to be. Well, with the people I was with, these were gangsters. So the more vicious you was, the more money you got, the more power you got. And I was good at it. I got everything the world says makes you happy. I had the penthouse flat in St. John's Wood. I had the sports cars, the 7 Series BMW, the Sport Merc convertible. I was earning so much money I couldn't spend it. But inside there was an overwhelming sense of just emptiness. I remember our late Holy Father, St. John Paul II, said that the person who gives us the desire to search for him in our hearts is Jesus. And no matter how rich or famous or powerful we become, we will never be truly satisfied or fulfilled until we have that personal relationship with Jesus. And I think we only have to look at our celebrities in the world today, how many of them commit suicide because that celebrity status doesn't fulfill them. That wealth doesn't fulfill them. And that personal encounter with Christ is life-changing. But because I didn't have that, I looked for what the world offered. And the world is pretty empty. So I was on crack cocaine, smoking dope like it was going out of fashion, drinking really heavy. I was also incredibly promiscuous. Sometimes I'd wake up with girls and I wouldn't even know their name. But the more promiscuous I was, and the more drugs I took, the more my soul seemed to die inside. Till eventually I remember one girl who I lived with for six months, she knew no more about me the day she moved out than the day she moved in. Because even though a lot of people looked on me as being a hard man, inside I was a scared man. Scared of being rejected for who I really was. So I wouldn't open my heart to anyone in case they rejected me like I felt my parents had rejected me. I was working a club that we part-owned in the West End of London, and I ended up hitting this guy, and the only reason I hit him was to impress an underworld boss who was there. And, you know, as I looked at this man lying on the floor, I truly thought I had killed him. And the only thought that came to my mind is I might get 10 years for this. And I just thought, what have I become that I could actually take someone's life and kill them? 
and not even care. That's what scared me the most. You know, there's a little scripture in the Bible where Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And one of the guys who comes out of the tomb says, he's not just dead, he's decomposing. Well, I don't think I was just dead. I think I was decomposing. I came in this normal night and I became aware of a voice speaking to me in my heart, a voice every one of us knows, our conscience, God within us. And I said the first prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, up to now, all I've done is take from you, God. Now I want to give. And as I said that prayer, that emptiness which had always filled my heart was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of God. And in that moment, I knew God could love someone like me. Whereas I'll be honest with you, up to that moment, I always thought I was worthless. And it didn't matter whether I lived or died. I remember saying to a gangster friend of mine just a few weeks before this, there's only two ways we'll end up. One's dead and the other's life imprisonment. And it doesn't matter. But in this moment, I knew it did matter because God loved me. The only person I knew out of faith was my mum. And I wouldn't see a lot of her in them days. I might give her an expensive present when I felt guilty. But this night I went round and told her what had happened to me. She said to me she had prayed for me every single day of her life. And nine days before this, she had prayed a novena to the patron saint of hopeless cases, St. Jude. And it was on the ninth day of that novena that I truly believe I heard the voice of God speak to me in my heart. I'll never forget the tears rolling down my mum's face as I told her how I had found God, probably washing away all the pain and misery that I caused her. My stepdad who died the other year, he gave me my first Bible. It was the old King James Version where all Jesus' words were in red. I just opened it up randomly and the first page it fell on was the story of the prodigal son. And I knew it was me. I knew everything I'd taken from God, I had just wasted. And I also realized in the same way that he was starving, I was starving. Now, I wasn't starving for food, and my money hadn't run out. But you know, whatever mask we wear in life to get the people to accept us, like us, when we're on our own, there's no one to impress, is there? We haven't got to pretend we can be real. Well, I'd spent so long trying to impress everyone around me that I got to the point where I'd even forgotten who I was. And I'd never once thought, who am I in the eyes of God? Do you know our Holy Father, Pope Francis, he took the name after St. Francis. St. Francis, when he first found God, for three years he said the same prayer, who are you, Lord, and who am I? Who are you and who am I? He must have wore a lot of masks. There's a guy I've been reading about a bit lately. You might have heard me share this before, but I just find him amazing. I was watching YouTube videos of him recently. Me and him had two things in common. One was he was an evangelist who travelled all over the world. The other was he was known as the fat man on his way to heaven, John Wimber. Well, John Wimber had read about St. Francis of Assisi, And he was very impressed with his saint. So he said to his wife one day, I'm going to go off to the mountains and I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast 
and I'm the seek God like St. Francis. Well, his wife looked at him very puzzled, and she said, you're the fast for several weeks? Anyway, off he sets. The same day, she gets a phone call at two o'clock. He said, pick me up, I'm in McDonald's. <laughs> she said, what happened to these seven weeks of fasting and prayer? He said, well, dear, I learned a very important lesson. My name is John Wimber, not St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> I think the only person we have to be to truly glorify Christ is the person he created us to be. And if we become that person, not only do we glorify Christ, but I think we change the world we live in. There's a true story of this man who takes his son to school every day, and every day he takes him to school, he says, I'll be here waiting for you when you come out. And every day the little boy looks through the classroom window and sees his dad waiting by the gates, goes running up and gets a big hug off him. And he says, I'm always there be here for you. I never dare leave you. Well, on this one day, there was a massive earthquake. I'm sure we all saw it on the TV and read about it in the newspapers. And by the time this father gets to the school, the school's a massive rubble. And there, buried underneath the rubble, are all the children. So this father starts pulling off the stones one by one. And some of the villagers help him, but most of them say they're all dead, you're wasting your time. Well, after 24 hours of this, this father's hands cut to bits by the stones. Everyone gives up. But he carries on searching, fighting back the tears, calling out his son's name. After 36 hours, he hears a whimpering sound, and he calls out Amit. And he hears the words, Papa, Papa. And as he removes these last few stones, all the children are still alive. And his son was heard to say, I told you my father would be here for me. I told you my father would never stop searching for me. Well, how much that father loved his son, I realized God the father loved me a million times more, and he had never stopped searching for me, even under the rubble of my sinfulness. So I expect I started searching, and I wondered where the true faith was, because I wasn't brought up in any religion. And I met this old priest who told me about a retreat that was happening. Well, I'll be honest with you, I thought a retreat was lying on a beach, Bacardi breezer, joint, nice girl, just chilling for a couple of weeks. And after all this emotional stress, I thought I could do with an holiday. Well, when I got there, it wasn't quite like I imagined. And there was about 250 young people. And a lot of these young people were quite charismatic. And they were coming up and hugging me. Well, I don't know if you know ex-gangsters, but we're not into this hugging business, yeah? Like the girls, it was fine, but the guys, please. As uh, Joe will tell you, down our way, you don't get a hug from a guy. You get a slap if you start hugging. So that was the first thing that I had to get over. But then there was a talk, and this talk was, give me your wounded heart. And as I listened to this priest speaking about how every sin we commit Every bad thing we do, every bad choice we make is like a wound on our heart. I was com absolutely, I expect, just completely captured by the massive crucifix they had in there. And I was looking at this crucifix and I was transfixed. That's the word I'm looking for. I was transfixed by Jesus dying on the cross. 
And I think for the first time in my life, I realized why Jesus had died on that cross. Because the darkest, most terrible sins I'd ever committed, he gladly carried in his heart to that crucifixion. And I remember I started crying. And I cried for the first time since I was 10. And it was like Jesus kept on whispering in my heart, I love you so much, I go through this all again just for you. And the more he said that, the more I cried. And as I came out of that talk, somewhere in that talk, this priest had spoke about Our Lady. And he had said how Our Lady is only there for one reason, to lead us to Jesus. All she wants is like any mother, what is absolutely best for us. And she truly believes the best thing for us is Jesus. And so when I came out of there, I said a prayer to Our Lady. And I just said, what is it that your son wants me to do? And I felt a whisper in my heart, go to confession. Now, I'd never been to confession in my life. And I was 27 years old. And I think I had broken practically every commandment there was. And do you know what I was most afraid of? What the priest might think of me. It's crazy, isn't it? But somehow she gave me the courage and I went to confession. And I left nothing out. I was there over an hour. And at the end of this confession, this priest puts his hand on my head and absolved me from my sins. But it wasn't his hand. It was Christ's hand. And I knew in my heart that I was forgiven. See, I didn't realize our heart is like a window. And on one side of that window is God's unconditional love pouring down every second of every day. But on the other side of the window are all the things we do wrong. And eventually we can't see how much God loves us. All we can see is how unworthy we are of his love. Or how worthless we are of his love. Well, I took all that sin and I tipped him out of the foot of the cross. And it was like I was alive again. I could feel the wind on my face, I could hear the birds singing, because that sin had killed me, but that confession had brought me back to life. You know, a lot of people talk about that personal encounter with Christ. Well, I can tell you, that moment after that confession, I knew what it was to be free. I came away from that confession, and I wanted a dance I felt so free. Do you know, one of the things that I'm always... uh, remembered by, I'm reminded, is when I looked into that priest's eyes, you know, because I thought he can't have heard too many confessions like mine. And, you know, when I looked into his eyes, he was crying. He wasn't judging me, he was Jesus to me. Do you know, me and him became quite good friends and he was a good laugh, this priest. And many years later, I said to him, I said, do you remember you was the first priest I ever went to confession to, Father? And he said, John, I can assure you, I never, ever remember a confession. But yours I'll never forget. (laughs) So I must have had some effect on him. You know, um, there's another story which I want to share with you. There's this, uh, and this is a totally true story. There's this uh, farm in Tipperary Island, where I live now, in Furless, Tipperary. And on this farm, they breed expensive racehorses. Well, one night when the owners were out, their young son of about 10 years old, he takes this box of matches 
and he goes over to the barn because he's fascinated by fire and he lights this little fire. Within a few moments, the whole barn catches a blaze. And as he runs out, he's horrified as some of the racehorses are actually burnt to death. And he's so petrified of what his dad's dad do to him that even though it's dark and he's afraid, he won't go back to the farmhouse. So he hides in these woods all night. And in the morning when he wakes up, delirious by the cold and hunger, he decides to go back to the farmhouse. And as he knocks on the farmhouse door, he's shaking with fear of what his dad's dad do to him. His dad opened the door, grabbed him in his arms and began to kiss him. And he noticed that his dad was crying. Then his mum came tearing down the stairs, hugging and kissing the boy. See, they both thought he had been burnt to death in the fire. They thought he was dead, but he was alive again. They thought he was lost, but he was found. They never mentioned what he had done. They were just so happy to have him back with them. I think in the same way that no matter how many times we fall down, no matter how many times we get it wrong in our lives, God the Father just wants to embrace us. He just wants to reassure us. He just wants to look into our eyes and say, I love and accept you. And you know, every time I go to confession, and I go regularly, I feel that embrace. I feel that, that incredible view of God the Father looking into my heart and soul and saying, I love you, I accept you. And it is one of the greatest joys in my life, going to confession. You know, I went to confession two days ago, and I would go Reagan, not because I'm holy, because I'm a sinner. And I need his mercy. And, you know, I really find it sad that it's a sacrament where people don't understand the grace of it anymore. Because God comes to us in that humility. Do you know, we do a lot of parish missions now. And we was doing one in Dublin in this place called Berkeley Road. And we had a Tuesday night was confessions. And on the Wednesday, it was the morning mass. Well, this old lady walking into the mass... She said to me, well, you've converted me. I said, how's that? She said, last night I went to confession and I confessed something I'd been carrying for 40 years. She said, every day of my life, when I was reminded of that sin, it was like the cloud of doom. It took away every joy in me. But last night you gave me the courage to go to confession. And she said, now I know the resurrection. She said, when I was coming home last night, I was singing. I felt so free. And when I came to the church this morning, again I was singing. She said, the greatest regret in my life is I didn't have the courage 40 years ago to get rid of that sin because I've let it ruin my life. You know, we did a school retreat to 200 boys in Manchester and they broke up into groups. And one of the questions we asked them, what more can Jesus do for us? What more can Jesus do for us? Now, I think there was 10 groups of 20. When they came back, you know, every single group, these like 15, 16-year-old boys said the same thing. Jesus can't do anything more for us. He died for us. He poured out his life for us. It's what we can do for Jesus. 
Jesus has died on that cross for one reason, so that we might know the freedom that he created us for. We also go in primary schools a lot, you know. Some of them look at me and think I'm a giant. (laughs) But when we go in primary schools, you know one of the things I love, and you'd know this as grandparents or mothers and fathers, the innocence in our kids. You know, the sort of five, six, seven-year-olds. They have this incredible innocence. No matter how many things go wrong, two minutes later, they're happy, they're joyful again. But in our lives, we lose that innocence, don't we? It's like that joy and that freedom that God created us for goes because we lose the innocence. Every time we taste this sacrament, we can claim that innocence back. We can claim that freedom back. Why do we have to go to a priest? Why can't I confess my sins direct to Jesus? Well, I'll be honest with you. I can only go from personal experience. I tried that three times. And every time, on those three times, I felt exactly the same as when I had started, as when I had finished. But when I went to the anointed hand of Christ on earth, when I went to the priest, I knew in my heart that I was forgiven. You know, Jesus says it very clearly in John 20, 20 to our first priest. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've been to a priest's ordination, but I've been to quite a few. And it really is tangible. They really do receive the Holy Spirit. He says, any sins you forgive, in my name, those sins are forgiven. Any sins you forgive, in my name, those sins are forgiven. You know, on your way in, or maybe while you were sitting there, you was given a divine mercy card. There was a Polish nun, thank you. There was a Polish nun who said Jesus was appearing to her in this form. Well, her spiritual director, who was quite a learned priest, he said, okay, if Jesus is appearing to you, ask him what the worst sins I've ever committed are. So the next month when she comes for spiritual direction, he said, what did Jesus say? She said, Jesus said he has no recollection what your worst sins are because you confessed them. So they no longer exist. So he doesn't know what they are. And he actually said that it doesn't exist in God's memory, anything that you've done that you've brought to confession. Someone said to me once that when we die, we'd watch a video of our entire life. I thought, my God, I don't watch a video of my entire life, especially with some of the things I've done. But he said there's one thing that won't be on the video. Anything we've brought to confession will not be there. In its place will be a man dying on the cross, saying, forgive them, Father, they knew not what they did. Forgive them, Father, they knew not what they did. Eradicated. Just finally, because I know we're going to confessions on this this little bit about confessions. When I was seven years old, it's a totally true story. I got a rosebush thorn embedded in my hand, you know, like a big thorn. And I was so petrified of my mum get in the needle and start digging, you know, like mums do when you get a splinter, that I hid her from her for three days. I couldn't even sleep, it hurt so much. On the third day, when my mum saw it, she removed it. It took her one second. Now, I was seven years old, and I thought, what an idiot. Why did I have that three days of torture? Why didn't I just go to her and say, mum, I've got a splinter? 
But say I left it in there a year. Oh, God forbid, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. How much more pain would it have caused me? If I had a little baby sitting on the altar, and none of us know this baby, but the baby's crying because he's got a thorn in his foot, how many of us, out of our compassion, would walk up and remove the thorn from his foot? Because he's crying, he's in pain. But say we loved the baby more than we loved their own life. Say we'd rather die in agony than have anything happen to that baby. How much more care would we take to remove the form from his foot? Well, when Jesus looks on us, the children he loves and adores, he knows every sin, every mistake we've made. And he sees those mistakes as forms piercing our heart, causing us pain. And he longs to remove them. But the only way he can remove them is if we give him permission. And when we go to confession, he's not content. We've just taken away our sins. He wants to fill us up with his grace. He wants to fill us up with his joy. He wants to fill us up with that freedom that we were created for. It takes a courage to go to confession. Do you know what courage it is? Humility. Humility. And I think that when I go to the anointed hand of Christ on earth, when I go to the priest, it's like I'm looking at Jesus. Those priests, they make mistakes, they get it wrong, they go to confession, but they carry a divinity which gives us Christ's complete and utter forgiveness, and we know it in our hearts. I really believe that there's some people here that those sins you've never had the courage to confess before because maybe you're worrying what the priest thinks, maybe they're sexual sins, I don't know. But they're stopping you knowing, first of all, how much you're worth and how much God loves you. And they're also stopping you having the freedom and the graces that he wants you to have. And we've got seven priests here, I think seven, maybe eight, who are here for one reason only, to take away anything that troubles us, anything that worries us, anything that disturbs us in Christ's name. And just finally, do you know, Sometimes it's not what we've done, but it's what's been done to us. Catherine's going to be giving her testimony tomorrow at the gathering, but she would say that a big part of her freedom came through forgiving someone, someone who had really hurt her. And she said as she brought this person's name to confession, it was like a rock being removed from her heart, and she was able to love again. And I really believe if you have been really hurt, bring those people or person to Christ in this confession so that he doesn't allow you to be a prisoner of someone else's sin because that is never God's will. So whatever it is we need to get rid of, get rid of it. And, you know, maybe you're wondering, why do we have to be so specific? Why can't I just say I'm sorry for all my sins? Well, I've got a very good doctor in Carrick-on-Shannon, County Leitrim, Dr. Porrick. And whenever I go there and I'm in pain, first question he says to me, where is the pain? Well, I'm just in pain, doctor. Yeah, I know you're in pain. Where is it? So he can't give me that remedy. He can't bring me that healing till I tell him. So I have the humility to tell Jesus what you're sorry for so that he can reach into that wound and touch it with his love and turn it into a scar.
Then there was a mass. Now, I was never brought up as a Catholic. So when they started saying that this white thing was meant to be Jesus, it made no sense to me whatsoever. I thought I was on the wacky farm because he doesn't look like Jesus. He looks like a piece of bread. And they kept on saying, this is our Lord, and kneeling down in the mud. And I kept on thinking, you are nutty. But at this Mass, I said a simple prayer, and I just said, if this is true to you, Jesus, then show me. As I received Jesus on that day, the only way I can describe it to you is every good feeling I ever felt in my life, including how I felt when I walked out of that flat, including how I felt when I walked away from confession, was magnified and magnified. And I knew that that was Jesus. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. Not because anyone was teaching me out of a book, but I had personally asked Jesus, and he had personally answered me. We're also, though, at a time of adoration. Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, the same Jesus we receive at Mass, is there beyond the altar. We can't be in the sun without receiving a suntan or sun rays. We can't be in the presence of the sun without receiving his grace. You know, I, I can't tell you how much healing I got through spending time in adoration. A lot of people come to me and say, I've got a lot of anger in me, you know, this suffering with anger. And I said, when I found God, I was full of anger. But through sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, he took away that anger and he left me his peace and healing. 